Thrive Suite Productions presents The Perception Veil. Are we alone in the universe? With billions upon billions of stars and infinite galaxies, it seems unlikely that we are the only sentient beings on a life-sustaining planet in that vast expanse. And there have been so many stories told of visits from people from another planet, an abundance of video shot of unidentified flying objects in the night sky. And even going back to the 15th century, several Renaissance paintings show what appear to be flying saucers or discs hovering over the heads or shoulders of the subject of the painting. Presented here for your appraisal, is one of the most compelling cases in the last 50 years for us not being alone in the universe. January 6th, 1976, Lancaster, Kentucky. Mona Stafford was celebrating her 36th birthday with two of her friends, Elaine Thomas and Louise Smith. The three women drove the 32 miles from their hometown of Liberty to Lancaster to have a nice dinner at the Redwood Restaurant on U.S. Highway 27. The three friends talked about family and the future and the coming bicentennial in six months. They had a nice dinner and conversation. None of the women had any alcohol to drink that night. After paying their bill with Elaine and Louise picking up the tab for Mona's dinner, the three ladies walked out of the restaurant at 11.15 p.m. into a chilly Kentucky night. It was 38 degrees and a wind of between 10 to 15 miles per hour, making it feel even colder. The women bundled their coats against the light wind and hurried to Louise's 1967 Chevy Nova for the trip back to Liberty. Heading out of the parking lot, they proceeded down Highway 27 towards Stanford to Highway 78 for what they assumed would be a nice little drive home. Little did these women know that this would be a very memorable trip, one they would never be able to forget. The women were still talking and laughing as they reached Stanford and made the turn onto Highway 78. Shortly after making that turn in Stanford, the three women saw what they described later as a bright, red object in the night sky. Mona was nervous that what she was seeing was an airplane on fire and was just moments away from a crash landing. But as the glowing object grew closer, Smith lost control of her car. The Nova was going 85 miles per hour, a speed that Smith was not in the habit of driving. She yelled to her friends, I can't hold it on the road. Mona was in the front passenger seat. She reached over to help with the wheel, believing that there was something going screwy with the steering. Her effort did not help. The car barreled down the highway at 85 miles per hour, and Louise noticed her foot was not on the gas pedal. The instrument panel lights came on, indicating that the engine had stalled. The object in the sky had moved uncomfortably close. The UFO flew behind the vehicle for a few moments, flipping on its end and then pulled up beside the driver's side of the car. All three women were mesmerized 
by the incredibly large, metallic, disc-shaped object with red lights ringing around the middle of the craft. They also saw a blinking yellow light on the underside. The craft moved ahead of the speeding car. A bluish-white beam of light shot from the craft into the interior compartment of the car. Smith described the light inside as sort of like a fog. This fog started to burn their eyes, and they could not keep them open. Tears were streaming down their faces from the irritation. The car slowed and then reversed into what they described later as a pasture entrance in a crazy manner. There was an old stone wall on both sides of the entrance, and that was the last thing either of the three remember until they found themselves back in the car traveling toward Liberty again, eight miles further down the road than any of them remembered. They were shaken emotionally and had exposed areas of skin with painful burns. The clock in the car must have been affected by the craziness that happened. It read nearly one o'clock. When they arrived back at Smith's home, the clock in the kitchen read 1.20 a.m. The 32-mile trip that typically took no more than 45 minutes had taken them more than two hours. That just couldn't be. There had to be something wrong with all these clocks. They went next door and awakened their neighbor, Lowell Lee. A little stunned to see three women on his doorstep at that hour of the morning, he confirmed that it was indeed well after one in the morning. The women described what had happened to them. Mr. Lee, now more interested than perturbed that he had been awakened, handed the women pads of paper and he told them to sketch the object that they had seen, but he separated them so that they couldn't compare notes. The three pictures were all very similar. The women went back to the house and called the police. A cursory statement was taken by the police, but not much interest was shown in their crazy story by them. The women were exhausted by their experience, and they went to bed. The next morning, Smith called the local naval recruitment office. They showed a little more interest, but did not offer any assistance. After that call, word started to circulate about the incident, making its way to the local news media. Over the next several days, Stafford had problems with her eyes and visited the optometrist and received help for a severe case of conjunctivitis, also known as pink eye. Smith's Chevy Nova had problems with the electrical system, and in a strange twist, Smith said her pet parakeet was now terrified of her, but when others came near, even those who were strangers to the bird, the bird acted normally. She also noticed the minute hand on her watch was spinning uncontrollably around the face. Jerry Black, an investigator with the Mutual UFO Network, or MUFON, heard about the women's encounter and contacted the three to find out more details. But Smith, Stafford, and Thomas were all reluctant to discuss their night of terror and confusion and did not have any interest in reliving it. It took some persuading, a show of sympathy for their situation, and compassion for their experience to convince the women to meet with him. In addition to Black, 
Astronomer J. Allen Hynek of the Center for UFO Studies and Jim and Coral Lorenzen with the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization also began investigating the case. Hynek and the Lorenzens found other individuals in the Casey and Lincoln County areas to independently corroborate seeing an unidentified flying object that night. Within a couple of hundred yards of the alleged abduction, one couple watched from the window of their home a large, luminous object which passed over the Stanford area. They noted the time as 11.30 p.m. Two teenagers driving around noticed a bright object in the sky and chased it all the way to Danville, about 10 miles northwest of Stanford, before losing track of it. They reported what they saw to the local police. Their description was similar to what others saw that night. The farmer who owned the land the abduction apparently took place on noticed a low-flying craft at about 11.30 p.m. that shot a beam of light down on the ground. Black, the MUFON investigator, brought along Peggy Schnell, a woman with experience with these kinds of cases, to assist and to help put the women at ease. In the first meeting with Black, the women did not reveal much beyond physical pain and an ever-present thirst. They talked a little about the craft itself, like its exterior, and how it flew. Thomas said, We live in fear of what we don't know. I'm worried about Lou and Mona. I think they're ready for a breakdown. Smith showed the two investigators a mark on her neck. Lifting her hair out of the way, she revealed a round, pinkish, grayish blotch about the diameter of a half-dollar coin. Black and Schnell both noted the sincerity of each woman along with their burn injuries and Mona's eye problem. The three women were struggling both emotionally and physically. The researchers who had involved themselves with the case agreed to back off and allow the women to recover before releasing any additional information to the media or speak with them about the incident. Despite their physical ailments and emotional state, the researchers all noted these women to be sane who had apparently witnessed something beyond theirs or anybody else's comprehension. In March of that year, Dr. Leo Spencer of the University of Wyoming flew in to conduct a preliminary hypnotic regression with the three women. Under hypnosis, the three women all revealed the same shocking version of events. During the lost time, they each talked of being brought aboard the ship and then being medically examined by shadowy creatures. After the initial hypnosis session, Mona Stafford was shown pictures of drawings of aliens. Up to this point, the term alien had not been mentioned to either of the three. She flipped through several of the pictures before pausing and dramatically saying, this looks like the light I saw. It was shaped like that head, pointing to a specific alien. Yes, I can see the face now, but it doesn't seem solid. It comes and goes. I mean, fades and reappears like in a fog. Its eyes are far apart, and at the bottom, the chin is like that drawing. This proclamation by Mona now made it obvious to the investigators 
they were dealing with an actual alien abduction case. The next hypnosis session was scheduled for June 23, 1976. Joining the investigators for that session was well-known UFO investigator Bob Pratt of the National Enquirer. Now, listen, I get it. The National Enquirer has an iffy reputation. At this point, the investigation was running low on money. What was seen as a highly credible witness verified alien contact by MUFON, the Center for UFO Studies, and the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization researchers, they were looking for a way to fund the investigation, and they reached out to the National Enquirer to help with the funding in exchange for an exclusive story at the end. And Pratt was seen as an honest and sincere journalist. James Young, a detective for the Lexington, Kentucky Police Department, was brought in to conduct a polygraph test. Young was recognized as an expert in the polygraph and was a skeptic when it came to UFOs. Young tested the three women separately. After lengthy tests with each of the three women, Young was shocked to discover the women were telling the truth. All three had done well and had not shown any hint of deception. The next day, Dr. Sprinkle conducted two regressive hypnosis sessions with each woman separately. The next day, all three would undergo regression with each woman having two sessions. During the regressions, the faces of the three women showed the emotional turmoil they were enduring. The details of what occurred on that harrowing night came slowly, hauntingly, painfully back to mind. Their bodies contorted and writhed about as they provided details of what they remembered about the tests the aliens conducted on them while on board their vessel. The women were subjected to physical examinations, sometimes harsh in nature, sometimes tortuous. There was not any sexual molestation during the abduction, but they were restrained in embarrassing, humiliating positions. Louise Smith revealed that her exam took place on a table. Elaine Thomas was inside of a capsule with an unusual-looking noose-like device around her neck, which tightened painfully if she tried to speak. Mona Stafford recalled her exam being in a chair-like device. All of the abductees recalled having their bodies scanned and instruments used which exerted pressure on their limbs. Thomas recalled a tube with a bullet-like tip on it, which probed her chest, and she also recalled a warm liquid being applied to her face and body. Stafford also remembered the warm liquid. The characteristics of the alien forms themselves seemed to be vague and often indescribable. All three related shadowy figures which floated or glided by them. They also recalled the frightening one eye or two eyes which hovered over them. Mrs. Stafford made an unusual statement in describing an eye exam. I could see a light at the end of a tunnel, which looked like a volcano with a jagged edge. At this point, she described great pain in her eyes, just like they've been pulled out. Mona recalled a single bright purple eye that radiated lightning-like rays. 
Elaine also joined the other two in describing the strange events. She remembered two eyes from a round head in a deep darkness. One eye, she said, was a beautiful blue encircled by a blue membrane-like lid, like a turtle, and the other eye appeared dark. Louise saw several different forms of beings during her ordeal, but she was so frightened that she closed her eyes and didn't look at them. However, some months later, she described her vision of the humanoids in similar fashion to her two friends, adding that their hands looked like jagged wingtips. It would be Elaine who recalled the most about their captors, at one point stating, there were several small figures about four feet tall. Each of the three ladies said these creatures had communicated telepathically. Not once was an entity mentioned to have any type of mouth. Ona said she could see a square table with a helpless woman on it, surrounded by small figures clad in white. The small beings were closely examining the poor woman. In her own words, I'm not sure if the person was Elaine, or Lou, or maybe even me. Much was revealed in these sessions, leaving all participants believing that an extraordinary series of events happened on the night of January 6, 1976, in Stanford, Kentucky. The women's stories have never wavered, nor has their belief by many that they were indeed abducted that night. The Stanford, Kentucky abduction case is thought to be one of the most well-documented abduction cases in UFO history. And yet, this case remains an enigma that continues to elude concrete explanation. The witnesses, their voices etched with a mixture of awe and trepidation, recounting tales of unearthly beings and an otherworldly realm that challenges the limits of human comprehension. While skeptics may dismiss these accounts as products of overactive imaginations, the haunting echoes of that mysterious night persist. The uncharted territory between the realms of reality and speculation beckons us to ponder the age-old question, are we alone in the cosmos? Or have the denizens of distant worlds indeed made contact with us? The Stanford incident leaves us staring into the cosmic abyss, urging us to seek, to question, and to wonder what truly lies beyond the perception veil. This is Steve White, the host of The Perception Veil. Thanks for stopping by today and listening to this episode. And a quick reminder that if you have a paranormal, supernatural, not easily explainable story, I'd love to hear about it. And you can send your story to The Perception Veil, and that's V-E-I-L, at gmail.com, and I'll be in touch. Also, if you like the podcast, rate and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you may be listening on. And if you would like to support the show in another way, you can buy me a coffee. There's a link in the show notes. 
Be well. And I'll see you on the other side of the veil soon. This has been a Thrive Suite production. Copyright 2024. All rights reserved.